Recently, I had the pleasure of talking to cognitive neuroscientist Ev Fedorenko. She is the head of EvLab, her own language lab at MIT. Their mission is to understand how minds and brains create language. In this interview, we speak about the language architecture of the brain, adult language learning, and the difference between thought and language. I hope you enjoy it. Ev Fedorenko, thank you very much for, for your time today. My pleasure. I was wondering, for, for people who don't know you and your work, could you just introduce yourself and talk a little bit about what you do? Sure. Um, I am a cognitive neuroscientist, and I've spent the last, I guess, dozen years now um, trying to understand something about how um, our ability to produce and understand language um, is implemented in our minds and brains. Um, I use a wide range of tools. I have used uh, functional MRI, fMRI quite a bit, um, but we also use other tools like um, behavioral approaches, computational modeling, um, work that relies on um, electrical recordings from the scalp or directly from the surface of the brains. And we're basically trying to ultimately understand um, what are the precise computations that have to happen for you to be able to understand what I'm saying right now and then for me to be able to output a string of utterances to convert my thoughts into this code that we share, which is language, in this case English, but could be any other language. Um, yeah, and um, that's that's what we're working in, and it's it's hard to do for language because um, we lack animal models for, except for kind of low-level perceptual and low-level motor output aspects of language. Um, animal communication systems are just too different to serve as useful models, um, and so we don't quite have um, all of the rich approaches that have allowed for progress in fields like vision. But, um, but I think we're making some progress. <laughs> we've, um, we've been able to narrow things down a little bit in terms of the hypothesis space uh, for what, how language works, uh, but there's a lot more to do, so we won't be out of a job for a while yet. <laughs> no, it's true. In fact, one thing that everyone that I've spoken to has kind of universally said, well, there's really quite a lot that we don't know. We, we actually know very little about language acquisition, really. Um, so I was wondering, I just want to ask with a really sort of simple and direct question that I know that a lot of people have. Um, is there a language organ in the brain? Organ is a loaded term. <laughs> organ is something that may imply something like innateness. Um, so what we know is that in an adult brain, so once your um, brain is formed and you're let, you have acquired language, there is a set of brain regions that are exquisitely specialized for processing linguistic input. They don't work at all when you process complex mathematical expressions, when you listen to rich and complex music, when you observe others' actions and try to make inferences about um, what they're thinking about and so on and so forth. So they really seem to just be driven by um, uh, linguistic input, uh, either visual or auditory. At that point, it doesn't matter where it came in. And so what we can say with quite a bit of certainty now is that in a well-formed brain, um, there is a brain network that is specialized for processing language, and it really seems quite selective for language. Now, how the system comes into place, um, we don't know much about. And there's a lot of debate. There is um, a big divide in, um, uh, between some people who think there is some innate predisposition for language. And at some 
level, um, this kind of a hypothesis becomes almost vacuous because it's kind of by definition true because humans but no other animals acquire language. So then it's not a very interesting, testable idea. But the question is whether there is something that's specifically there to deal with language from the start or whether it's something that we, um, whether it's a communicative, communicative system that we can acquire through pretty sophisticated learning mechanisms that we know humans have. Um, and I generally um, align with a kind of letter view. I think we're very good learners um, and um, uh, we learn all sorts of complex things from the environment. So I think it's quite plausible that we can also acquire this communicative code through our interactions with conspecifics who use that code, um, which is mostly our parents early on. <laughs> um, People who are raising us. Um. Yeah, exactly. But um, it, it, it is, um, I, I suppose my question about a, a language organ is, is more, and exactly, you're right, it's not a very good question, but I, um, the, no, the, there isn't, there isn't, but there isn't, because looking at your work, you've sort of discovered that there isn't actually just one part of the brain that's responsible for language. It's spread across various areas, right? That's right. That's right. So it's a network of areas. Um, again, it's um, when people, I hesitate to use the term distributed because sometimes when people use a term like distributed, it kind of means not localized anywhere in the brain at all. And it's kind of across the whole cortex. The computations are somehow all doing something to do with language. It's not quite like that. So there is a pretty restricted set of brain areas and you can find them in each person. You can find them very easily in just a few minutes of scanning if you're using functional MRI or um, MEG or something like that. Um, and these areas um, respond robustly and selectively to language, but it is a set of regions. So it basically, and it's a network that comprises um, some areas in the left frontal cortex are so kind of going along your um, uh, left frontal lobe and then along the um, lateral temporal cortex as well. And it's left lateralized in most individuals, but almost everybody has a right hemisphere homolog that um, responds in a similar way, but just much, much less. So it's kind of not as good a version of your language system in the other hemisphere. Um, that's kind of the typical architecture. Now, in some people, it's lateralized to the right. That does happen. Um, happens a little bit more often in left-handers, but not so much more often. Um, and some people show very bilateral responses. So it's really kind of hard to say. And if you didn't know, it didn't have the clues of which hemisphere is which, you couldn't tell by looking at the strength of activations. And some of these differences may be functionally relevant. Um, we and others are investigating these kinds of questions. but. Um, yeah, but that's basically it. There's a network of regions, mostly left lateralized and very specific for language. Huh. It's, it's, it's fascinating, actually, because recently I was watching a Netflix documentary about this girl who had really terrible epilepsy. And one of the, the basically the only um, treatment that she could be offered was basically a, a lobotomy where they separate the, the two halves of the brain. Um, and... In the in the documentary, the doctor said to the girl, she might lose her language, but she might not, depending on which side of the brain her language is in. And I remember thinking, what? You mean that that can differ depending on the person? And I was really surprised to learn that, that, that that's possible. Yeah, you mean you were, they were talking about like a hemispherectomy, like uh, uh, removing the whole hemisphere? Uh, no, uh, oh, uh, perhaps, yeah, actually, I'm not sure. Because that, that's, I mean, people used to do that kind of surgery. I didn't think that, I mean, at least in the U.S., they don't do that anymore. But it used to be the case that um, 
in severe cases of uh, drug-resistant epilepsy, people would do hemispherectomies, which is removing a whole hemisphere, and then basically that space fills with um, water, you know, cerebrospinal fluid. And the striking thing about these individuals is that if it's done, if this surgery was done early enough, which is, you know, the only cases where it was done, um, these individuals grew up pretty much fine, um, which is quite striking and um, remarkable, suggesting that really we maybe don't need all of the tissue that we have in the brain to have a functional cognitive system, uh, suggesting that perhaps there's quite a lot of redundancy um, and the system is built so that it's robust to, to some kind of damage, right? Um, and you can use the homologs in the other hemisphere, but... Um, um, once you once you kind of mature enough and you have acquired language, then damaging your language dominant hemisphere becomes quite um, devastating and leading to profound deficit. Yeah. So 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 the the areas that you know are responsible for for language. What what kind of other things do they do apart from language? Well, they re they really don't do anything. I mean, they really just do. They do language comprehension and production. They're engaged to some extent in production, although in general production is less well understood than comprehension. It's quite a bit harder to study, so fewer people, fewer labs study production. But um, with respect to language comprehension, it seems that these regions um, show sensitivity to both individual word meanings, but also um, combinatorics, so putting words together into phrases and sentences. Because when you're interpreting an, a linguistic utterance, you have to, you basically, you can imagine kind of a mental lookup that you're doing for all of the bits that you're recognizing in the input, right? This is a word I know, this is a construction I know. So you're looking up all these bits that you have stored over your lifetime experience with language, um, but then you also have to figure out how they all go together. And according to some proposals, um, uh, there are separate parts of this language network that do this um, kind of stored meanings um, function as opposed to the combinatorial function. And um, in our work, we just don't seem to find support for that separation. Seems that any brain region that is involved in combinatorial processing cares very deeply about word meanings. And it actually, that story, even though it's contradictory to many current um, proposals of the neural architecture of language, it aligns very well with current linguistic theorizing, uh, where um, it's not just the case that all nouns and all verbs are the same, but how we combine words is very highly dependent on the specific properties of individual words. And so there is no such, um, there's no sense in thinking about very abstract rules like, oh, a noun combines with a verb. Instead, what we seem to be doing is we keeping track of very, very particular kinds of uh, combinatorial rules where this particular noun can only combine with you know these verbs but not these other verbs and so it makes sense that that kind of processing would be actually tightly integrated the knowledge of words and how they combine um, and that's what we seem to find across many approaches yeah exactly i mean i've sort of noticed that that well <laughs> the the idea of kind of universal grammar you know the idea of kind of the slot and frame you know kind of system where where language exists in these kind of, um, you know, with on and off switches and all, and all that. Definitely the field seems to be moving towards, um, like you say, a more, a more kind of lexical approach to grammar. Like there's like, um, you know, construction grammar and role and reference grammar and even exemplar theory as well. Um, I mean, does, I was, I'm just wondering about what you think, what the implications might be for people who are trying to learn a language. Like, if, if we know that brains store language maybe more as, um, you know, kind of big chunks or sort of patterns, 
would it would it be better to study language by doing that rather than sitting and trying to memorize grammar rules? Yeah, grammar rules and individual words. Um, that's a very good question. So language learning is not exactly my expertise. We dabble a little bit in these questions through some of the projects, but um, there is um, an idea that I think is gaining some ground and um, if you talk to language acquisition researchers, I'm sure they will fill you in more on this, but um, the idea is that some of the advantage that, so, so basically um, the let's, let's like ground things out, right? So one key difference between a kid learning a language and an adult learning a language is that there seem to be some things that are harder for adults. Like it's not hard for adults to learn a large vocabulary. They can do that in a foreign language, but things that seem really hard are things like learning the sounds of the language. So you often have an accent if you learn a language as a non-native person, and you often have some difficulties with grammar. Right, so those two things. Now, an idea that's, like I said, gaining ground is that perhaps kids have an easier time with grammar precisely because um, they um, don't divide the input up into words when they first encounter speech, right? It's actually very hard from the acoustic input or visual input if you're a sign language user, right? It's very hard to put boundaries among words. And so what you get are these continuous chunks of material, linguistic material, which often is in the form of phrases or, you know, constructions, if you will. And um, things like, for example, subject-verb agreement will come as a unit within that chunk. Right, so instead of having to memorize a separate rule that if I say a singular noun in English, I have to add an S to the verb if it's a present tense verb, um, you kind of get this um, chunk and um, eventually by getting enough different kinds of chunks of that time, you may be able to draw that generalization out from these stored units as opposed to um, this very analytic strategy that adults apply when they learn a foreign language where they learn words and then they learn rules separately and then they try to combine these two sources of information online, which is really hard and demanding on not just memory, but also online processing. And um, um, yeah, so that's one idea that's out there. And I think um, if you, so having talked to some language acquisition researchers, they'll often say that when they share that information with people who teach people foreign languages, they say, oh yeah, of course we've known this. It's very helpful to learn to teach people in these chunks where they don't maybe necessarily even know all of the composition of how what that chunk is made up of, but they get, they memorize these larger chunks of material and that can be quite helpful. So apparently some of these ideas have already permeated the like applied side of things, uh, even though on the theoretical side, I think there's still a lot to work out about how exactly the memory mechanisms work here and the learning works. All, all of the people that, that I talk to, um, you know, even polyglots who are not really too interested in the science of language, but, you know, there's, there's a lot of people who say that input is so important, like massive amounts of input. But I also realize that it, that can't be the whole picture because there are plenty of people who, you know, like, for example, heritage speakers who have all this passive language, but they're not able to speak it. And, you know, there's plenty of adults who can, who are really comfortable reading a book, but they can't have a conversation. So, you know, I'm sort of conflicted about, obviously, input's important, but output also has to play a really big role in, in, in towards fluency, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, there is a, it's, it's a very, you're asking very good, deep questions. I mean, so it's certainly, um, I think most people would agree that the set of 
knowledge representations that we have um, when we know a language are shared between comprehension and production. And yet there, there are really striking differences between people's abilities to use it in a comprehension way, which is kind of a more passive process, if you wish, perhaps. Like if you know a language and you hear a conversation, you kind of can't help but uh, map it onto these representations. Sometimes you really wish you could zone out and not hear it, but if somebody on the bus is, so, you know, you just listen to it, you, you can understand it. But uh, production is this much more kind of effortful, goal-directed behavior where you're retrieving these chunks of knowledge and then putting them together into phrases and utterances. And um, uh, yeah, you can kind of see these things um, go hand-in-hand hand, um, uh, in various aspects of um, uh, human cognition. Like, for example, in kids, production always trails comprehension. So kids can understand a lot before they start saying words or putting words together. Um, so that's, you know, a harder task that comes in later. And in uh, aging and in various disorders, production is typically more affected, um, like a lot of comprehension. In fact, comprehension seems to, um, comprehension abilities seem to keep improving into quite old age, like into, into the 70s and 80s. You keep uh, being better and better at being able to extract meaning from linguistic utterances but a lot of the production aspects of production start suffering like remembering specific words or um remembering you know um how words are used in specific contexts or something like that like that that can start suffering as you um age even in a healthy aging situation yeah well i'm actually wondering um because you've spent so long kind of looking at people's brains especially the brains of um, you know, people with aphasia, so like problems with language production or, or, or understanding. I'm wondering if, if you have any insights into why people's um, language abilities can differ. Like, like it's clear, especially if you're a language teacher, you know, that some people are just better at learning languages than others. I mean, do you have any ideas why that might be? It's a great question. I mean, the, the why um, can have many different layers there, um, that why question. Um, the one thing to say is that um, we don't have um, great measures for assessing linguistic ability in um, uh, adulthood. So there is a lot of measures that exist for developmental uh, linguistic abilities. And there, I think there is some evidence suggesting that, for example, girls are a little bit ahead of boys um, in their development. Of course. <laughs> of course. <laughs> and, uh, um, and then we have tools for assessing uh, linguistic decay, like in disorders, stroke aphasia or degenerative aphasia. But um, one big um, question is, you know, how much stable variance is there among typical adult speakers? Um, and... Um, uh, most measures that exist um, are just not that great. They either load very much on the general IQ, so measures of vocabulary that are used in tests like SATs and GREs, they correlate very strongly with IQ, suggesting that they're not quite tapping whatever is special to language. And so we and a few other groups are trying to develop better um, tools for measuring that. Um, and then once we have good tools for assessing your language competence, uh, we can try to relate that um, to, for example, um, on the one hand, your general cognitive abilities to see if some other aspects of your cognition may or may not be predictive of your linguistic abilities, but also try to relate them to neural variability. Because as I briefly alluded to, we see some stable variability in the neural architecture um, of language. And one big difference is with respect to how lateralized responses are. 
And as I said, in most people, they're quite strongly left lateralized, but in some people, they're quite bilateral. And this kind of variability is bound to be important because in every developmental disorder that has ever been studied, um, I think pretty much every single one, you find more bilateral language responses. And this is not just for language, it's not just for things like dyslexia and autism where linguistic or communicative problems occur, but also for things like schizophrenia, which is not traditionally associated with linguistic problems, or epilepsy, which is a very generic kind of disorder. Um, and in all of these disorders, you seem to find these more bilateral responses to language, suggesting that something goes not quite right early on in development if you're prone to um, a, a neurodevelopmental condition. Um, and that leads to this more bilateral um, uh, language representation. And so uh, kind of a reasonable hypothesis is that having these more bilateral responses may make you somehow less good at some aspects of language. Um, and some people have argued this. I think the evidence is not um, um, kind of rock solid yet. So I think there's more work to do, including in developing better measures just of, of, of the typical population's abilities. Um, but there's also something to think about, which is there's many ways in which you can be better and worse at language, right? Some people are really um, fluent, no disfluency making speakers, right? They just produce these incredibly fluent productions. Um, and um, other people may um, have vast vocabularies because perhaps they are avid readers and they've just accumulated these massive amounts of uh, linguistic knowledge and um, how, how words are used in particular contexts. And other people may be able to acquire new for meaning mappings like polyglots, right? They take a language and they learn it and they take another one and they learn that. And it seems easier for them or at least enjoyable compared to many other people to, to do that. Um, and, and different um, components of language um, may well, uh, the variability may well be separate one and um, may have different underlying causes. And I just think there is no answers yet. And so that's um, one area where um, I'm excited to learn more about um, in the next 10, 20 years. Well, <laughs> well, I mean, I, I know that, well, actually, I, there are, there is some, um, some of your, your work I wanted to, to actually talk um, specifically about. Um, and, uh, well, one, one of those, because... Um, was this this is actually a preprint which is um the domain general multiple demand network does not support core aspects of language comprehension well you know the name of your own paper <laughs> um and, and what's really interesting to me when i read it um well, well maybe to start could you sort of um just give everybody a sort of rough idea what exactly the multiple um domain network is yeah, 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 yeah. So this is work um, led by a graduate student, uh, Evgenia Djacek, who is now on um, uh, Vanderbilt. Um, so she was uh, an RA in the lab for a few years. So, um, yeah, so basically there's two systems. So the system that I was um, talking about at the beginning of our conversation is what, you know, some people call the language system. I mean, it's a shortcut. It's, you know, um, some people don't like this term, but it's basically a set of regions that are active whenever we process language. It's just descriptively, that's what this is. There is another system that some people have argued is quite important for language. And that system is a very, very cool system. And uh, we have it and monkeys have it. It seems to be evolutionarily conserved. And it's basically um, a bilateral extended system. It has uh, parietal components and frontal components. And it's a system that does everything that all of the existing specialized systems don't do. So it helps you solve new problems. So um, imagine, you know, 
uh, a monkey of any species or a human, at, at some point we're gonna have, we're gonna be faced with a task where we haven't done that task before. And that's something that humans are really good at, right? We can solve new problems really well. Um, and this is um, the system that basically supports this kind of fluid reasoning. Um, damage to the system has been linked to losses of fluid intelligence, though not necessarily to any uh, damage and crystallized knowledge that you've acquired in other domains. But it, um, yeah, it, it, it impairs your ability to quickly reason about causal chains and so on. So, so hence the, uh, the, the name is uh, due to John Duncan uh, in Cambridge, England. Um, and so the idea is that this system um, um, can serve, subserve many different kinds of demands. So he calls the multiple demand system. And it's a very, very domain general system because we see it come online during some language tasks, but also during some visual tasks and some auditory tasks and some motor tasks. And, um, Empirically, it seems like the more effort you're putting, the more demanding a task is, the more the harder that system is working. And oftentimes it works alongside, of course, a specialized system, like, for example, the language system or the vision system and so on. Now, um, the question is whether these highly domain general regions are actually doing some of the heavy lifting during your um, uh, uh, language understanding. And a lot of people have argued that, yes, that these uh, regions maybe subserve some fundamental computations like predicting what's coming next. And maybe these regions are so general and they could do it for all kinds of domains like language, but also you know, social reasoning and visual processing and whatnot. Um, or maybe um, because language necessarily requires keeping some information active in memory while you're processing incoming information. Maybe the system that's linked to things like executive demands, like working memory and cognitive control, maybe it's critical for holding some linguistic chunks active in memory while you're processing new information. Or maybe due to its inhibitory role in, in inhibitory control, it helps us inhibit irrelevant meanings of words or irrelevant parses of sentences, helping us zero in on the, um, uh, the one that's intended. And all of these hypotheses are perfectly reasonable and could have been right, but they aren't. <laughs> because if you look at um, across many, many, many different kinds of um, manipulations and responses, at least in healthy individuals, um, the engagement of the system during language comprehension seems to be heavily task dependent. So basically, if you give people a normal communicative situation like what you and I are doing right now, right, listening to somebody telling you a story or explaining something, um, the language system is highly active. Uh, the MD system is pretty much at zero. Like you can measure baseline brain activity, like when you're lying in the scanner with no stimuli being processed, and that's kind of your baseline. And language is basically right there in that system. Now, if suddenly I say, okay, um, we're talking right now, and then afterwards I'm going to ask you some questions to make sure that you understood what I said, right? So I'm imposing some additional extra task demand. So now your multiple demand system will start getting engaged. Similarly, you know, if you give people just a list of words, to read and just think about the meanings of words versus give them a list of words and say, okay, I'm gonna give you a word at the end of this string and you have to tell me whether you saw it or not. Again, during passive comprehension, the system is not active. The language system is always active, no matter if you're doing a task or not, it's just always crunching its uh, numbers, however it solves language. Um, but the multiple demand system just doesn't seem to come online unless there is this extraneous task demand. So the way that um, I've come to describe this sometimes as kind of turning language into problem solving. You can make a language task um, 
uh, a difficult task, which is not really about communication anymore. It's just using kind of words to get to some other goal. Um, and then that system come, comes on, but otherwise not. And that from that, it follows that it cannot possibly support core computations that are essential for understanding um, meaning, extracting meaning from utterances, because that kind of a computation should be happening regardless of what you're doing with that information later. It should be kicking in kind of as an automatic process whenever you're getting linguistic input. Yeah, and well, that actually sort of brings me on to, on to my next question, because you've actually published a paper which was... Um, which, which asks this exact question with uh, Rosemary Varley, which is um, language and thought are not the same thing. And I mean, this, this is a, a fascinating question. And um, I, I often tell my students that um, rather than sort of focusing so much on the specifics of language, you know, it, it's, it's a great idea to first develop your kind of ideas and your ability to you know, um, express yourself. And, and those kind of things are kind of independent of language in a way. Um, do, so do you think that's kind of fair, what, what I'm saying? or? So, I mean, I think, um, I mean, and again, I, I run into this also with um, students when they write papers, right? Uh, clear thinking cannot be fixed by the quality of your writing. If you're not thinking clearly about a problem, uh, even if you use the right construction, the right words, the paper is not going to be good, right? So basically <laughs> what makes, um, uh, so everything bottoms out in thinking process in some ways. And language you can think of as just kind of a code where we can translate thoughts into to share them with each other. But a lot of the thinking can happen very well even when language is not accessible to us, which is um, what happens in these um, uh, severely aphasic individuals, which sometimes... Um, uh, instead of having damage to just a, part, a small part of your language system, as commonly happens uh, when you get um, stroke and then uh, consequently aphasia, sometimes you have a very large stroke or sometimes other forms of um, uh, neural damage and you lose kind of your whole language system. Um, and if that happens in adulthood, you are severely linguistically impaired. And yet, if you probe these people's ability to think in all sorts of ways, um, it just, they seem to be totally fine on this. And, um, and that, that is contra quite a few views from philosophy, old views where a complex thought is just not possible without language. But we can see that that's just wrong. At least in the adult brain, once all the machinery is in place, you can take this ability to convert thoughts into this code that allows us to share things with each other and thinking can proceed just fine. Now, there's a different question of whether language may be necessary to get some of these thought capacities into place developmentally. And there's at least some evidence um, suggesting that in the domain of sophisticated social reasoning, um, language may be important for developing kind of a full-blown um, social cognitive ability. But in other cases, it's um, less clear. But um, regardless, in an adult human brain, um, thinking and language seem quite separate. Of course, they have to interface, right? I mean, there have to be links between particular words and expressions and more abstract meaning representations, but um, they're certainly very separable as well, and you can probe each independently. Yeah, and, and, and as well, I think it's, it sort of leads into the, the whole question about, about language and culture, which is something, you know, really fascinating to me because, you know, obviously a, a child who's born in, in 2019 in a kind of modern country, you know, they just by through the act of being born, you know, they acquire all of this knowledge, like, 
you know, they, they acquire knowledge about how technology works and, um, and, and so it's sort of like, well, obviously you don't need language to think, but you know, there are certain, there are obviously certain types of thinking. Like if you want to, to talk about philosophy, for example, you know, they're concepts that were invented by generations of humans before us. And we sort of took all that language and, and we use it to describe very specific things. Right. But, um, well, and that's, that's another part of your work, right? Is, is the kind of intersection between language and culture. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, would, would you say that, and, and I know that's not your, your, your specialty language acquisition, but, but, um, how important for you is the kind of combination of language and culture? I mean, I think of language as um, fundamentally embedded and, I mean, <laughs> it's, um, it's very hard to think of language outside of the context of human culture. Uh, I mean, I guess this all ties into the question of why and how we came up with this sophisticated ability to share thoughts with each other and what drove this. Um, and, uh, you know, one common evolutionarily hypotheses are just impossible to like seriously evaluate, right? Because we can't go back and uh, see how, but, but people try to come up with clever paradigms to do this. But um, basically one uh, common idea is that we needed to transfer knowledge, right? We got more sophisticated in our tool making. We started being able to kind of, um, uh, you know, preserve meat, do better hunting, better farm, like, you know, all of these um, kinds of abilities that were relevant to survival at the time. And as that knowledge accumulated, it became quite important to pass that on to our children so that they can survive and so on and so forth. And so um, um, uh, just, you know, within that hypothesis, it, it's certainly kind of culturally very grounded, like it's you're coming up with a sophisticated communication system so that you can um, preserve knowledge, which is, you know, shared knowledge is ultimately what culture is um, in some way. I mean, people have very different definitions of culture, but basically it's you know, our experience in a society, right, in a group that we live in. Um, and so uh, it's, again, um, coming back to a strong divide among some people who think language is kind of biologically um, in there, uh, we, we come in with something that is there to learn language. Um, I think we certainly have brains that differ from other species. How exactly they differ, uh, we don't know. Uh, a common story is that there are some circuits that specifically evolve in humans to allow for things like um, sophisticated linguistic processing. It's not clear, the evidence for that is not clear at all. Uh, one thing that we know happened is a huge scaling in the association cortices. So basically, very simply, you can think of the brain of the cortex as made up of um, sensory perceptual areas that deal with things like basic visual, basic auditory, basic tactile perception, and so on. Motor cortex that does the control of our various effectors like eyes, hands, um, other limbs, and so on. And then um, a lot of the rest is what people refer to as association zones. So these are kind of flexible parts of the cortex that presumably um, do whatever um, whatever else is left behind <laughs> besides the low-level perception, low-level motor output, which is a lot of thinking, a lot of social cognition, a lot of language. And um, uh, so, so something about our brains is different, but um, I would not be surprised if we find out eventually that the only thing that's really truly different is um, the size of these association zones and the plain number of cells that we have to be able to encode vast amounts of information. Um, 
And that's diff very different from the idea that we evolved a separate circuit or a particular brain region that can do, say, complex syntax. Um, and now the arguments that people will give against the simple scaling ideas, they'll say, well, look, dogs can learn words and parrots can learn words, you know, monkeys can learn words. Um, and it's true, but the, there's orders of magnitudes difference in how many words they can learn. And that is a non-trivial difference. Like people kind of think oftentimes that a difference in, in scale, quantitative difference is not necessarily that important, but I think that's misguided. And in fact, um, Steve Piantadosi and I wrote a paper a few years ago where we showed that um, a system where you are um, uh, able to have a vast enough number of communicative signals, you can have things like combinatoriality emerge as a kind of byproduct. So you don't necessarily need to start out by uh, building in a sophisticated structure building machinery a priori, instead by simply expanding the space to store these um, communicative signals, you may be able to um, uh, have that system evolve a property like com combinatoriality. Yeah, it was it was a great it was a great piece of work, and and, and it was it was just about uh, pressure, right? Social pressure, yes, basically. Exactly. exactly. To, to talk a little bit more about the kind of social the social aspect of of learning, there's um there's this other um great uh, great great paper that you were involved in, which was uh, tracking co-listeners' knowledge states, and. Yeah. And what was interesting about this was that um, the effect on the on on the speaker of just having another person in the room it changed the way that their that their kind of brain processed language, right? That's right. That's right. Yeah, you've been doing your homework, eh? <laughs> you read a lot of papers. Um, yeah, so this is work led by a former postdoc, Alessia Jorolev, who is now a faculty in um, Canada, and it's a very cool marker. Um, um, that um, uh, was used originally by a group in Europe, um, and we've kind of expanded on that work, which is um, there is a very particular marker of linguistic surprise, which we can measure with uh, scalp electrodes. Um, it's like when your brain says, what? Exactly, exactly. But it, interestingly, it's not a general what, it's actually a linguistic what. It's like when you're trying to build a linguistic meaning. So it's not like a general surprise. So it's kind of a very, very cool specific marker. And um, uh, uh, you can then leverage to see when our brains are surprised given particular linguistic input. And so in that um, uh, study that you mentioned, we're exactly trying to understand, you know, um, uh, in typical linguistic exchanges where oftentimes it's just two people leading the conversation, but in many, many cases, there's also other people present. And it's trying to think of how well we represent other people's mental states because um, conversations are very fluid objects, right? Oftentimes, two people are talking, but then somebody else comes online. And um, just from introspection, it seems like we're very sensitive to who is uh, participating in which bits of conversation and so on. And so in this experiment, it's basically um, showing, um, as you said, that uh, even if the speakers are kind of told to not pay attention to this other person who is present, they seem to, um, if they know that that person is going to be surprised by something, like they haven't heard a particular scenario in which some word will make sense, they will be kind of surprised for them, even though they themselves, of course, have the right context, but they're tracking their surprise. And that's uh, quite um, striking and interesting. And I think um, it would be really nice to try to understand this, the scale of this more, because of course, we can't have infinite capacity. Like if we're talking to, you know, among 10 people, um, that will become very memory intensive. And so how we prioritize who we're uh, tracking, like, is it socially um, 
like some social hierarchy, like, <laughs> you know, we're talking to our boss versus like our kids, like what, what determines like who, which people we track. And, um, but, but, but I think um, the, the general bottom line of um, that work and a lot of other work at the intersection of language and social cognition, I think all point to a very, very tight link between uh, language and social reasoning. Those things just go hand in hand in many ways. Um, and um, even though there is this alternative view of language as kind of having nothing to do with communication, I mean, I just think that just can't possibly be right. I mean, of course we can use language for other things like talking to ourselves and thinking through things. Um, but as we already talked about, we can also think without language and we can't communicate efficiently without language. We can do something, you know, we can do stuff with gestures and hands, but it's incredibly limited. Um, with language, we can share any arbitrary thought about the world with one another. And that's the power of the communication system we have. And that's very socially grounded. And I think likely, driven by the evolution, the, the um, increasing social complexity of our societies, which then facilitated being able to um, use um, collective intelligence to develop, again, better tools um, and evolve as a, at a societal level and then the need to pass that information. Yeah, I remember, I don't, I don't have the actual paper in front of me right now, but I have spoken about some work before where they actually took native speakers and they asked them to tell a story to another native speaker, but they instructed the person who was listening to not basically show any facial expressions or to not show any like, um, you know, like any of that, um, you know, like the normal kind of discourse markers or, you know, nothing, no, like no ums, no ahs, no reallys, nothing. And, and what happened was the person telling the story, their fluency completely broke down because they weren't receiving all those social cues. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think I may have heard about it. That, that, that's, that's a very cool demonstration. Yeah, we're really used to these back channels. Of, like, we want to make sure that what we're saying is getting across through this channel that we've established, right? And so that's why it's uh, um, very useful. And we do it in auditory information. We do it in visual. And when we have all of this, it's much more helpful. And that's why it's helpful when people nod during talks, when you give lectures. <laughs> they're just stonewalling you. It's, um, you know, it's very hard to lecture because it's like either they're not interested or they're to totally confused but having this back and forth um, uh, interaction is um, very very helpful yeah and, and just just one final kind of piece of work which is which is much more sort of specifically related to to my interest which is second language learning which was um, the the work that uh, well this paper I uh, don't underestimate the benefits of being misunderstood and and it's really funny but it's it's one of those kind of things that seems obvious but only after the after the fact and and so basically you showed that um people who have a foreign accent they can basically make more mistakes without the other person noticing because the person who's listening gives them more kind of leeway more freedom to make mistakes right that's right yeah that's exactly right and it's um I really like that result because it's um, it stands in contrast to all the bad things. Like I myself, and you know, non-native speaker of English. I mean, I'm fluent, obviously, but uh, it's it's you know, it's not my native language. And there are so many things that go along, so many not good things that go along with having an accent. Like people think that you're dumber or that you're less nice. I mean, it's like all of these, and there's like a barrage of sociolinguistic papers showing all of these not good things that people think about you when you have an accent. Um, and yet, this is some advantage that maybe um uh, maybe you have um which is uh yeah you can get away with uh, <laughs> you know making an error here and there and people will kind of correct it for you um uh, given their top-down knowledge about 
um, greater amount of noise in the channel. I think I think my, my, my favorite piece of research about that was they, they analyzed they analyzed I think 50 years of Hollywood films and they found out that like 90% of all of the bad guys had British accents. <laughs> <laughs> I would have thought it's Russians, at least like in, uh, in the whatever, Cold War era, but yeah, 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 yeah. That's right, that's right, that's exactly right. That, like you put uh, bad guys, make them sound foreign, and yeah, yeah, that's right. One question, and, and again, I know that, you know, um, well, you have experience in, in learning a foreign language because you've learned English. I don't know if you learned uh, English as an adult or... Uh, I started when I was seven, so I went like to an English emphasis school, and we started at uh, in the second grade, which I think was around seven. So, so sort of after all the years that you've spent, you know, studying language and studying the brain, um, what what advice would you give to somebody who's trying to learn a second language uh, as an adult? Is there anything that that's sort of really clear in the science, you know, that works? What works? What doesn't work? That's a very hard question. I mean. Um, there is certainly a strong argument that many people have made for immersion. So saying that, you know, just learning from books and um, manuals and classes is just not quite enough. And like to get to like to, to make some big leap, you really want to be in that environment. Um, I'm honestly not uh, on top of the literature that very carefully in a controlled way evaluated these different things. Uh, but there's, it seems like there's that, wisdom shared among the language learning community. Um, and uh, um, it also seems, I mean, from, so we worked a little bit with polyglots and one thing that stood out to me quite strongly is that like, I initially thought that they would be a much more homogeneous population. There would be something similar about how they all learn languages. And the diversity really, really struck me because it seems like there's minimally kind of two phenotypes <laughs> among the polyglots, where um, one uh, kind of people are these incredible extroverts. They go to markets where multiple languages are spoken and just strike up conversations with um, random people, which to me seems totally terrifying, but you know, extroverted people can do that kind of thing. And then they start, um, so they're really good linguists users. So field linguists are really good at that, as you can, you just start trying to communicate without knowing anything about that language and gradually pick up on some common words and then try to kind of um, bootstrap your way out. And then there's other people who are total book nerds and they like, you know, maybe don't go talk to anyone most of the time and they just sit there with their grammar manuals. And maybe the kinds of competence that they acquire from these different ways of learning is quite different. Like maybe people who learn through more conversation and interaction with other people, maybe they would be much better um, at uh, producing things, right? Being able to kind of fluently output things. And people who are learning, you know, sitting there buried in grammar books, they would be able to um, uh, maybe produce, produce things, but in a written form um, or understand things um, really well um, and write things with, with no grammatical errors, but not have a fluent conversation with someone. Um, I don't know. I think there's a lot of, um, uh, a lot of questions about second language learning that are still remain to be um, studied. And one thing that I've been really wanting to do for a few years now, and uh, maybe I'll still get to it, but there's only so many things that one can focus on at a time. But one thing that I've wanted to do is set up this um, online portal for polyglots, or at least for people who, I mean, I wouldn't put like a boundary of what, like for people who seem to have an easier time learning languages, and then trying to at least cognitively characterize this population to try to understand, you know, 
is there something in common to the extent that there's multiple strategies? What are they? Do they lead to different kinds of outcomes uh, to the extent that we can measure them with the kind of cognitive tools we have? So I think there's a lot more like actual research to be done on what makes um, language learning work. But I think one thing that's likely to be true, given what I've learned so far, is that there's likely to be more than one way, <laughs> which I guess is always a lesson in life. Um, it's not like there's <laughs> one you know, very clear path to success in this area. I think there's going to be multiple strategies and different things likely work for different people. Oh, no, I, I agree. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, my, my experience in, in the classroom is is that, yeah, um, there's, yeah, exactly like you say, there's there's people who prefer to, to, to attack learning in different ways and, and you know, they find their own path to, to fluency, you know, or not <laughs> most of the time. Yeah. Right, that's right. That's right. Some things really don't work. Yeah, that's right. So, so one final question, um, b because you've you've devoted, you know, most of your life, all of your professional career to to studying, you know, brain and language. Why do you think that languages are important? It's an interesting. It's an interesting path for me. It has been an interesting path. I mean, I guess I started out thinking that there was much more of a closer link between language and thought. Um, I used to be kind of um, of the mind that um, uh, a lot of complex thought really requires language. And like I said, that may, that may still be true in some developmental accounts, like to get certain forms of thought into place may require language. But it seems like in an adult brain, they're really separable. And so in some sense, it was, um, uh, I mean, I wouldn't say disappointing, like science never disappoints, but it was quite surprising to me how much complex thought could proceed when you take away the ability to express these ideas linguistically. Um, so there was kind of that angle to it. But also, I mean, I, I just really um, enjoyed languages since I was little, even before I started, well, I guess, yeah, when I started learning English a little bit early and then I was learning French and Spanish and German and I just really liked seeing patterns. <laughs> like I'm a very analytical type of person and I liked seeing commonalities and differences in how languages come up with ways to solve, um, uh, you know, certain problems like conveying that those two words relate to each other or something like that. And that was just really pleasurable and I actually, um, I was just... Um, telling a colleague here that when I was little, I didn't know cognitive science existed. Like, that's just not something you knew as you grew up in the Soviet Union. There wasn't like a field of study. And so what I thought I would, I would do is I was going to start a company and I was going to try to teach languages in families, meaning um, in language families. So instead of teaching um, people French, I would teach them all the romance languages at once or something like that. So develop a system that would leverage the similarities. So that was like my plan as of, you know, 10 or 11 years of age. That was like my <laughs> my my great idea and I still think there's something to that I mean I think um I uh, I, I think that's you know uh, somebody maybe should at some point pursue that <laughs> and it may be um um fun but then I got to college and I took a class in the psychology of language and I was like wow people actually study how we process language and you know they seem to like be able to do that full time and that just was remarkable and so then I was like okay I definitely I definitely want to do that it seems like a cool problem we don't understand um um and like, you know, to understand something, you really want to be able to build a machine that would do this. And I don't so much care about building a machine that can say, say do machine translation or something, but I certainly want to understand things at a level so that somebody can build that machine. And we're very far from that yet. Um, we're getting some hints here and there. We're placing some constraints on theoretical spaces about um, language, but a long way to go yet.
Well, um, Ed Federenko, thank you very much. Uh, I've learned a lot. It's been super fascinating. And uh, thank you very much for your time. My pleasure. It was fun talking to you.